Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Does God ever seem distant to you? Well, no matter how you feel, God is real. To mature your friendship, God will test it with periods of seeming separation, times when it feels as if he has abandoned or forgotten you. But God doesn't leave you. He has promised repeatedly, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God admits that sometimes he hides his face from us. This is a normal part of the testing and the maturing of your friendship with God. Job said, I go east, but he is not there. I go west, but I cannot find him. I do not see him in the north, for he is hidden. I turn to the south, but I cannot find him. But he knows where I am going. And when he has tested me like gold in a fire, he will pronounce me innocent. Now tell me, how do you praise God when you don't understand what's happening in your life and God is silent? Well, you do what Job did. Tell God exactly how you feel. I can't be quiet, said Job. I am angry and bitter. I have to speak. This sounds like a contradiction. I trust God, but I'm wiped out. Regardless of circumstances and how you feel, hang on to God's unchanging character. He is good and loving. He is all-powerful. He notices every detail of my life. He's in control. He will save me. Circumstances cannot change the character of God. Trust God to keep his promises and remember what God has already done for you. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Leonard Blair shows you how to trust in God with a reminder to remember his promise to you, I will never leave you. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into your space, into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you on this third Sunday of Lent? Very well, thank you. Can you believe it's already the third Sunday of Lent? Yeah, it does go quickly, doesn't it? It certainly does. One of those things that we celebrate this week is Celebrate Your Name Week. And it kicks off today. It incorporates many other days to honor your name within it, such as Namesake Day, Unique Names Day, Discover What Your Name Means Day, all these things. Can, can you tell us the significance of adopting a saint's name for your confirmation? Well, that's something that uh, is not part of the ritual itself. It's customary, though, in some countries to do it. I don't think every place does it. But, of course, you have your baptismal name. And of course, traditionally, for a Catholic, that was uh, taken from the name of a saint. Today, that is no longer the case. As we become more and more secularized, many people choose names that are really not saints' names. Although I think most still do, at least the ones that bring their children for baptism. Uh, and uh, the uh, idea was to have a patron, uh, uh, an additional patron. You know, in many cultures, people have more than one uh, name. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they sometimes carry a whole host of names, particularly in uh, Latin cultures uh, uh, where, there, where there's more than one name. So uh, confirmation is an occasion for that to happen. Uh, and... Uh, you know, people can pick a name of a saint. Um, so that's what we do. And hopefully try to emulate the life of that particular saint whose name you choose for confirmation? 
Well, the idea of confirmation is that you're strengthened and given the courage uh, to give witness to your faith uh, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So obviously, if you pick some—saints are the heroes and heroines of of the gospel. You pick a name of a saint that you feel can— can inspire you to bear witness to Christ in your own way as they did. Today is also Simplify Your Life Day. It's a day for all the busy people who want to calm chaos and clutter or anything else that overwhelms their lives. How do you simplify your life when it becomes too overwhelming? Do you have any any secret way to do that or any special way? I don't think so, but I do think that uh, one way is to just turn that cell phone and that web page off a little more often, and yeah, I think people are obsessed with these things, and they it can complicate your life. It's, I mean, I'm not saying that that's not they are not great helps to to living if they're used prudently and properly, but I think sometimes they can make people's lives very complicated, and and certainly add to the the busyness of of our day to day lives, huh? Certainly. Wednesday, March sixth, is the birth anniversary of the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Maybe everyone knows the line quoted from Elizabeth Barrett Browning, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And she was born on March 6th of 1806. Are you a fan of poetry, Archbishop? Oh, not particularly. I mean, obviously, we have a liberal arts education, and we were presented with that as part of our literary heritage. And I certainly am not, it's not that I dislike it, but I haven't taken mm. that keen an interest. Although for the church, sometimes poetry has entered into the realm of the liturgy, uh, the sequences and things. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, I don't mean in any way to downplay it. It's a beautiful form of human expression. But personally, I, when it comes to literature, I have been more involved in, in reading novels and, or uh, plays, things like that. I'm with you. Thursday, March 7th, is National Cereal Day, a day in celebration of America's most popular breakfast food. Cereal got its start back in the 1800s as an unappetizing and difficult-to-digest health food. It wasn't until 1939 when cereal would take on the sweetness that we're familiar with today. Do you have a favorite kind of cereal? No, I don't. One thing I can tell you, I don't like those things loaded with sugar. I don't Mm. like things that are too sweet. I'm afraid so much of our food is too big, too fat, and too sweet, and that's too bad. Well, according to one researcher, Honey Nut Cheerios is America's favorite cereal. I'm not so sure about that. I prefer something like plain old Cheerios type thing. Anyway, I understand you're going to be present at the screening of of a new movie that's coming out on Mother Cabrini. You want to talk about that? Yes, it's very interesting. Uh, Later this week... It's not been released to the public yet, but apparently, at least I don't think it has, but uh, I'm, I am attending a showing of this um, movie on the life of Mother Frances Cabrini. And I, that's very interesting. You know, she, she's quite a remarkable person. Mother Cabrini, of course, was uh, someone who came here to the United States working principally among um, Italian immigrants. Um, and she... Um, did heroic work, tremendous work. And, uh, you know, I didn't realize that she, she was buried in, in New York, in Manhattan. Uh, she mm. had died in Chicago, but I don't know the story of how she wound up on Manhattan. But one day, since I've been in Hartford, you know, occasionally I like to go to New York 
to see things. And I was going to that um, medieval cloisters of the Metropolitan Museum way in the northern part of of, Staten, of uh, Manhattan Island. I got out of the metro. Well, no, we don't call it metro there, the, the subway. And uh, I looked and there was this thing that said Mother Cabrini Shrine. Well, I walked in and lo and behold, there she is buried in, under the altar. Her body's there. You know, she's a remarkable woman uh, who founded innumerable institutions in the United States. You know, this movie, I'm told, is really very fine. Uh, there's another one about Mother Clelia, the foundress of the Apostles of the Sacred Heart. Our Bishop Betancourt and I went to see this pre- pre- preview. That movie has been shown already on national TV in Italy and in Brazil. And Mother Clelia is also a remarkable woman, a remarkable story. And it's told, uh, hers in particular, in, in, with a modern t- uh, juxtaposition of a modern uh, thing that parallels her life. So I just, you know, sometimes we wonder about the world of entertainment and movies and such, but there are many really good things out there. I suppose sometimes people have to seek them out, uh, but they're they're very much worth watching. Well, I'm interested in your evaluation of the movie on Mother Cabrini when uh, perhaps we can talk about it next week as well. Well, you know, another thing, a sad thing, I don't know if people will remember, but a while ago they had this thing in New York City about honoring uh, distinguished women. Nominations were taken from the public about uh, honoring uh, different women, I think with either a statue or plaque or something. Mother Cabrini apparently got more votes than most or anybody. For, for I don't want to exaggerate, but she was very high on the list, if not the top person. And they ignored it and were planning to just eliminate her. And there was such an uproar that apparently she was restored to the list of women being honored. Mm. But the times in which we live today, you know, that for a Roman Catholic saint, uh, it's not necessarily received well in certain quarters, shall we say. That's too bad. Again, we look forward to your evaluation of the movie and see what comes of it. Let's take a look now at happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis drawn from some of the Pope's writings. And I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask you, Archbishop, to comment with your own thoughts. This is taken from the Pope's message for World Day of Prayer for Vocations, March 29, 2015, and it's called, Go Forth, You Will Reap a Hundred Times More, the Pope says. At the root of every Christian vocation is the moving experience of faith. Believing means transcending ourselves, leaving behind our comforts and the inflexibility of our egos in order to put Jesus Christ at the center of our lives. It means leaving our native place and going forth with trust, knowing that God will show us the way to a new land as he did with Abraham. This going forth shouldn't be seen as a sign of dissatisfaction with your life, your feelings, or your humanity. On the contrary, Those who set out to follow Christ find life in the abundance by putting themselves completely at the service of God and his kingdom. Jesus says everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for the sake of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life, going forth as its root in love. Your thoughts, Archbishop. Yes, indeed. Well, going forth uh, is always a profound uh, truth of uh, our faith, you know, that uh, life is a pilgrimage. The church is on a pilgrimage until the end of time. Uh, it's not static. It's dynamic. Uh, but we we came from somewhere and we're going somewhere. We're not just wandering aimlessly. Uh, and similarly, uh, for each individual person, no matter who they may be, but particularly for us in the church, the sense of mission 
and pilgrimage, you know, that we, we have this journey to make. We have a God-given mission that's not entrusted to anyone else, that we, unlike any pilgrimage, we have to endure the rigors of pilgrimage, but we have a happy home at the end. History is not just a, a vicious uh, circle or cycle of things, and no person's life is aimless. I mean, we can treat it aimlessly and, and suffer as a consequence, but it's meant to, to, to move us along. So I just think that, uh, you know, I think the, especially during Lent, uh, how much we ought to be conscious of that, that, uh, you know, we, we, there, are, there are steps along the journey. There are times when we need to be revitalized. There are times when we need to take stock. There are times when we need to renew our confidence and our vision. Uh, and, and Lent is a wonderful time to do that. Sure is. Let's look at our gospel reading for today. And our gospel is from John's Gospel, the second chapter. After the gospel is dramatically presented, then we'll talk with you, Archbishop, and ask for your thoughts. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers at their business. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all with the sheep and oxen out of the temple. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. You shall not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign have you to show us for doing this? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not trust himself to them, because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man, for he himself knew what was in man. Archbishop, on this third Sunday of Lent, what should we take from this gospel? Well, there are a lot of things here, you know. Um, One is the fact that Jesus is reminding the people of his time uh, that it is the spirit of their faith that is what is important and not a mechanical kind of, um, how should we say, a mechanical kind of system that devolves in some cases into just crude uh, uh, money changing. And lest we think that that's something of ancient times, we know how today religion can be turned into a business. We know how religion can uh, and money can converge in some ways that are neither healthy nor authentic. Obviously, material things and money are part of life. And uh, the scripture and, and Jesus himself has a lot to say about things like almsgiving, you know, of St. Paul's big collection for the church in uh, Holy Land. But the point is that you have to do it in the right spirit, that it doesn't devolve into some crass materialistic thing. So Jesus uh, is outraged at the turning the temple into a marketplace and he, but that leads to a much more profound statement that he says, destroy this temple 
and in three days I will raise it up, uh, referring to his resurrection from the dead. Well, suddenly we have an unbelievable leap, uh, just a tremendous leap, that who is the, what is the real temple of God? It is the body of Christ. And of course we know, as we say and as St. Paul tells us, we are the body of Christ, united with him through the sacraments in particular, through baptism, and certainly in Holy Communion, in receiving his body and blood into our very selves. So there's a lot here, you know. Uh, Mm -hmm. But there's also a sad note, you know, Jesus would not trust himself to them because he knew them all and did not need anyone to testify about human nature. He himself understood it well. Wow. You know, Jesus uh, did not trust himself to them because he knew them, and he knew that their ways were not God's ways, this uh, coterie of people. Uh, that eventually would uh, come together to seek his death. But in the plan of God, all this is overcome, you know, and uh, we we see God's way of uh, vindicating what is good and true and right and bringing life where there is death. And that's really the message of Lent and the message of Easter. Well, this for sure is not the Jesus that we are accustomed to seeing in Scripture, making a whip, driving people out of the temple, overturning tables, spilling their money, telling people to get out of here, He's angry. What does the anger of Jesus tell us about anger itself? Well, that there is such a thing as righteous anger, but the problem is most people justify themselves that their anger happens to be righteous. But 99 and 9 tenths percent of the time, it's not righteous. Uh, anger, the anger of Jesus is directed toward people's conversion, uh, not to their condemnation. Remember that, that everything that Jesus came to do and everything he said was to to bring people to repent and believe. That was his message. Anger can be an instrument of correction and of, of the positive, but we have to be very, very careful about it. It seems like the disciples of Jesus were truly clever in putting the pieces together, making the connection between his words of destroying this temple and raising it up in three days. They actually made the connection between his words his death and resurrection, so they came to believe. That's pretty impressive. Yes. Let's look at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners, Archbishop. First of all, Mario from North Haven says, For the past 50 years, I have made it a point to say the Stations of the Cross at least once during Lent. I remember going with my mother as a child, and it is a custom I now share with my children. But I am curious, when did this devotion start? What are the origins of the Stations of the Cross? Well, thank you for that question, because it is my patron saint, St. Leonard of Porto Maurizio in Italy, who in the 18th century was the great promoter of the devotion of the Stations of the Cross. And it was as a result of his efforts that uh, it was decreed that all the churches in the world should have erected the Stations of the Cross as a devotional matter. So over the centuries, I don't have it in front of me right now, the history, but I do know, of course, that these stations were, they're biblical for the most part, and they were evolved into a devotion over time. But it was St. Leonard of Port Morris who actually promoted it to such an extent that it became a universal practice in the church. And of course, it's a value all the time, but particularly during Lent and Passion Tide, we uh, pray the stations. Michelle from West Hartford has an interesting question. Michelle says, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, Jesus says, 
When you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your almsgiving may be secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will repay you. I have always considered donating to the church something that is between me and God. However, many churches now track what you give to allow you to take advantage for tax purposes. If I were to write off the contributions I give to the church, wouldn't that be contradicting the teachings of Jesus? For a long time, I've just assumed the answer was yes and never considered doing this. What is the church's opinion? Well, Michelle, I can tell you that, you know, I, uh, like any American taxpayer, I take advantage of the um, deductions that can be made for charitable contributions that I make, including those to the church. I don't think that's exactly what our Lord was referring to when he condemned people who go about trumpeting to other people in public how generous they are to, uh, to, uh, in giving alms. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to understand that uh, Jesus was talking about people who were ostentatious in their, uh, and, and very, um, what's the word, haughty, about, uh, and condescending about how generous they were, making a show of it, you know, making a big show of it. I don't, that, that's a far cry from saying that in a modern economic system, you can uh, deduct uh, uh, charitable contributions, which greatly helps the ability of people to make these donations to charity, because for some, otherwise, they might not be able to do so. I have no problem even where they list donors to a particular uh, campaign, uh, because it's not, uh, in our modern culture and society today, it's not really what our Lord was talking about. I mean, I think, I suppose there are people who, by their personality and such, could make a big uh, uh, deal of saying, well, look at me, I did this and I did that. Well, of course, that's not what our Lord, or let's put it this way, that's not what our Lord is saying we should do. But we we can, uh, you know, uh, to know that people are contributing and everything is not, uh, not a contradiction of the gospel. And Mike from Suffield says, Years ago, my parents purchased burial plots for my family in the local small-town cemetery we, where we lived. My family is not Catholic, and I wasn't at that time either, so the cemetery is Christian but not Catholic. I have since happily converted to Catholicism and am wondering if there is a way I can still use my plot. Can it be blessed by a Catholic priest or whatever ritual is required? I would prefer to be buried with the rest of my family, if at all possible, and not have to purchase a plot in a Catholic cemetery. Well, Michael, you have raised a very interesting question. Uh, I mean, I know the answer that, yes, you can be buried with your family. You don't have to be buried in a Catholic cemetery. Uh, But my interesting question is this. You know, for all the times I had funerals when I was a parish priest in Detroit, uh, Mm. there are these huge Catholic cemeteries. I don't think I ever had a graveside prayer in a not Catholic cemetery. And my my own question in my mind is, if in the ritual for funerals, there is a little prayer there that it can be said in those circumstances in addition to the regular prayers. But whether there is or isn't, certainly there's nothing to prevent a person from being buried outside of a, a, a Catholic cemetery. And Sandy from Winchester says, I have a daughter who is extremely sensitive to the incense that is used in church on feast days and during certain liturgical seasons. She is a chronic sufferer of migraines, and the incense triggers them instantly, and she becomes deathly ill. Would she qualify to have communion brought to her under these circumstances? If not, is there another solution to her plight? 
Well, Sandy, I'm sorry to hear this. The only thing I can say is, uh, well, good thing you're not uh, Eastern Catholic or Eastern Orthodox because you, there's incense at everything. The only thing I would say among us is we in the Latin Church don't use incense very much. Uh, I, I mean, now, admittedly, for very high holy days or solemn occasions, uh, it is used. Uh, we use it a lot at the cathedral. But uh, there are many, uh, I would say 90% of the masses that are offered in our churches, mm. there's absolutely no incense. So sadly, she might be excluded from some of the more solemn celebrations, but she certainly, there's, I don't see why she would have to be brought communion outside of church. Ralph from Oxford said, we just learned that a close family member will be getting married next year during Lent. We, of course, are excited about the couple's pending nuptials, but we thought that the Catholic Church frowned upon weddings during Lent. Since they are getting married in another state, it seems that the local church there must permit the practice. Does each diocese make its own decision on this issue? Ralph, you've stumped me. I don't know. You're quite correct. It used to be that there weren't weddings during Lent, and now there are. And uh, I, uh, I don't think there's any hard and fast rule about it at all. I, we don't have a rule against it in the in the Archdiocese of Hartford. I mean, I, I would prefer that people not be married during Lent, but uh, like I say, what is not forbidden is permitted. So uh, I guess you could say that it, it does depend on, on local local practice. And Rachel from Guilford says, At Mass, why does the priest break the consecrated host, and why is it done so subtly? Surely there's a meaning there, but if so... Why is the congregation not engaged when it is broken? Well, uh, the scriptures say that Jesus blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. And so the breaking of the bread is actually a kind of euphemism that was used, that is used uh, for the Eucharist. Uh, So, I mean, I think traditionally there's a symbolism kind of attached of of Christ uh, uh, being sacrificed, crucified, you know, broken for us. But really, it also simply has to do with the fact that when you share a meal and you have bread, it traditionally was broken. And, you know, it, it, it's not like Wonder Bread, all pre-sliced. Traditionally, bread uh, it was broken and, and given. And so uh, that's the origin of it. When you say that you're not engaged, well, I mean, you're engaged in the sense that, that you're witnessing uh, this. Uh, and when the priest holds up the, the host, uh, it is broken. In fact, I told the priest once at an ordination ceremony, I said, you know, sometimes we clergy have a habit that after the, what's called the fraxiopanus, the breaking of the bread, that when we hold a host up to the people, we kind of put the two pieces together as if it were whole. And I said, you know, we can't, we shouldn't do that. Christ is broken on the cross and given for us, distributed. In other words, the bottom line is we priests cannot put Christ back together again. Mm-hmm. We we couldn't do it if we wanted to, and that's not what we should do, because Christ was broken for us, and he broke bread and distributed it. So I think the very fact that uh, what, what people see there is uh, a, a part of the host, uh, uh, that, that they are engaged, and, and that's part of the meaning of the liturgy. And Larry from Newington says, The Russia-Ukraine war has just entered into its third year, and I was reading about the current situation and what help is still being provided to Ukraine. The Knights of Columbus have been big supporters of the war, and the Supreme Knight, Patrick Kelly, 
said Pope Francis has encouraged the organization to continue providing humanitarian aid to Ukraine. If I wish to help, would contacting the Knights of Columbus be the best avenue to do this, or can I provide support to Ukraine through the Archdiocese of Hartford? Well, Larry, uh, yes, of course, uh, you know, um, you say the Knights of Columbus have been a big supporter of the war. Of course, by that you mean the, the big supporter of the poor Ukrainian people defending themselves against this aggression by the, so, uh, I was going to say Soviet Union, because it may as well be anymore, but uh, Russia. Uh, but uh, yes, I make personally contributions to Ukrainian relief through the Knights of Columbus Fund. And I'm sure if you go online, uh, you can find it. And I would recommend that highly. The Archdiocese itself is not in a position to do this as well as the Knights who are on the ground in Ukraine. Of course, we also, in the state of Connecticut, have the Ukrainian Catholic Diocese, Bishop Komniki. And uh, they also, from their own uh, Ukrainian people, I, I went to a Vesper service there uh, I think it was some time ago, uh, to pray for, for uh, Ukraine in the midst of this war. That's another place that you could uh, check into. But uh, certainly the Knights of Columbus, that's where I give my money uh, for the relief of the Ukrainian people at a time of war. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord God, war is always being waged by the evil one, in our world for our souls. And war is raged also unjustly in so many parts of the world where one people try to overcome and subdue another. And we pray that we may have peace in our souls in overcoming evil, and we may have peace in our world by people being reconciled and living together in peace. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next week. Until then, enjoy this upcoming week. Thank you. You too. Thank you.